there's over 40 new procurement requirements as part of the uniform guidance. And some of them are so different from what our nonprofit clients have been doing in the past, a lot of them just aren't addressed in their current procurement policies and procedures. Welcome to our episode of Rethinking Vendors. This is Tom Rogers, CEO of VendorCentric. Thanks for joining us. With me today, I've got my colleague, Paul Schrantz. Hey, it's great to be here, Tom. Thanks so much. Always good to be with you, Paul. And I've got my other colleague, Samad Safadin. How's it going, Tom? It's uh, kind of a crazy day. Going good. It has been a crazy day, it has, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been. It's been a podcasting kind of day today. Today's yeah. been a podcasting we day. We had a podcast sure. a little bit earlier today with our friends from Vendor Risk, talking about vendor management software. And um, that was really interesting. We learned a lot from them and how uh, how their platform's really being used by a lot of organizations to help them organize and manage all their, their activities with their vendors. But today, what we want to talk about is something that affects uh, a large segment of our client base, which are nonprofit organizations that are getting federal funding. So for those nonprofits that receive federal funding, I'm sure you're very aware of the uniform guidance. It is um, uh, basically brought together all the different circulars that folks were previously operating off of into one uh, one super circular. Uh, and a big piece of that guidance were a whole bunch of new procurement standards that came out. Um, and, and frankly, there were, there were so many changes that were going on that um, the OMB had deferred implementation of the guidance several years, but 2018 is it. There's no more putting it down the road. Yeah, I thought 2017 was going to be the year, and then come June, July, the OMB uh, pushed it off to 2018. But as Tom said, now is the time. We're ready for it. Yep. Well, I, we're ready for it. I'm not sure if, if all the nonprofits <laughs> out there are ready for it. And, and I think that was the topic, really, of today's podcast is um, I think a lot of folks are really in the process right now of, of trying to go through and implementing all these new standards they have to follow under the uniform guidance and we've been fortunate enough to do some work with with a, a number of nonprofits that are going through this and helping them get their policies procedures systems in place and updated and ready to roll so that when their auditors come in and start testing this stuff they'll be ready and they'll be compliant and uh, and as is part of our work we found that there are quite a few challenges that our clients have been going through that we thought we'd share with you um, so that you can get a sense of the types of things that your peers are running into and um, in, in some cases how they're, they're overcoming them. So as you think about uh, how you're doing your own implementation and rolling out uniform guidance within your organization, if you have to do that. And uh, what we're going to do in this podcast is we're going to weave in um, some color because recently Paul and I were, were out with one of our partners, RSM. They're a national CPA firm. And with them, we put together a, a roundtable of nonprofit federal grant recipients. Most of them were international NGOs. So we had some procurement folks there, some CFOs there, some operations folks there, all talking about how things have been going with them and their implementation of the uniform guidance. So we thought it was interesting to kind of compare what we're seeing with some of the clients we're working with, with 
some feedback and perspective we were getting from these guys. So we want to share that with you today as well. Yeah, and it was great to have RSM there with us because Tom was able to really go through and share a lot of great experiences and these these concerns that our, our clients are facing, but also have Elisa Sava from RSM share what the auditors will be looking with or looking for as they begin to do these audits in the coming years. So it was a great perspective and there was some really great uh, interaction with all the people in the Sure, tenants. sure. For those of you that don't know Elisa, she's a partner at RSM and she uh, she has a number of, of international NGO clients that she works with. So she brought some great perspectives. So we thought we'd share with you what, what auditors are seeing as they're, as they're gonna come out and take a look at what you're doing as well. So with that, let's get started. Um, so the, the first challenge that we're seeing is really um, whether organizations start from scratch with putting together new policies and procedures around procurement or whether they build off of something that they've already got. And uh, th- that's really coming from a standpoint of there's over 40 new procurement requirements as part of the uniform guidance. And some of them are so different from what our nonprofit clients have been doing in the past, a lot of them just aren't addressed in their current procurement policies and procedures. So as we're getting in there and working with them, they're asking the question, well, do we do we completely revamp what we have, which which will end up looking new, or do we just start from scratch and really think about this thing from the ground up? And um, I think there's a little bit of a mix of both, depending on where these organizations are and how sophisticated their procurement manual is already. But in a lot of cases, I think our clients are taking an opportunity to, to actually step back and think about procurement and, and really take the whole thing from scratch and, and rethink how they do this, not just from a compliance standpoint, but maybe getting at certain other processes and workflow issues that have already been a challenge for them. And, and so starting from scratch makes it a lot easier to make those changes rather than try to change something that they, they've already got in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the other related things is we also found a number of organizations that, that actually did not have procurement manuals or those things in place because right. it wasn't a core expertise in their organization. So right. in those instances, we really were able to help them start fresh and get it going. Right, yep. And and because we're starting from scratch and and we were able to bring in our, our compliant template that we use, we can get things rolling pretty quickly and, and get it rolled out rather than trying to revamp something they already have that might take weeks to do. Uh, we could really get them something set up in two to three weeks and, and get rolling from there. So so that's that's one of the first challenges we're seeing. Uh, a second one is, you know, not every federally funded nonprofit gets all their money from the federal government. Um, uh, quite a few of them get money from private foundations, they may have other earned income that they generate. So as they're looking at implementing these procurement standards, they're thinking, you know, do we need to create a, a one set of policies and procedures that everybody follows regardless of where the money comes from? Or do we create a separate set of policies and procedures for non-federal money that we're spending versus the federal money that we're spending? And I think where we're seeing folks come down for the most part is um, they, they want to create a little bit of a lighter version of procurement requirements for the non-federal money so they don't have to go overboard and get all the bids and uh, solicit small minority women-owned businesses, things like that for every type of procurement. Uh, they're really starting with the base set 
of standards that all their buyers have to follow regardless of where the money comes from. And then if it's federal money, there's an additional set of compliance requirements that they have to follow as well. So that one comes up every single time and it's really creating the right balance of, of how much is too much. Um, and But while, while you wanna be compliant with the federal standards, you also wanna make it as simple on the people that are buying stuff as possible. And if they're not spending federal money, not have them have to jump through hoops left and right to spend it when they're not required to do so. That makes sense, yeah. And, and so what's like the what's the third of these top 10 here, Don? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things we're seeing that's <clears throat> a challenge is under the uniform guidance standards, they've, they've put out, um, they've actually are prescriptive in the methodologies that you have to go about in doing your procurement. So they've come up with five approved methods of procurement that include uh, what they call micro purchases, sole source procurement, small purchases, which is things under 150,000 uh, bucks, competitive proposals, and sealed bids are the five. And so, um, but, but as they're prescriptive about some of those things, they also leave some of those things uh, open to interpretation. For example, um, for anything over what's considered the micro-purchase threshold, which is currently 3,500 bucks for most organizations, not all, but most, um, you have to get uh, an adequate number of competitive bids, but they don't define what adequate is. So organizations are trying to determine, well, is adequate three or more? Is adequate two or more? How much flexibility do you give the, the folks that are doing the buying is to determine what adequate is? Mm -hmm. so, so that comes up pretty frequently. Um, also, one of the procurement methods um, that is approved, sealed bids, is something that you see a lot in municipalities and in the federal government space, but you rarely see that ever with most nonprofit organizations. So some of them are going through the conversation of, should we use sealed bids? Should we not use sealed bids? When are they, when are they reasonable to use? And I think I would say, Paul, probably in most cases, almost nobody, none of our clients are using sealed bids. And I think the feedback we got from most of the international NGO community is they, they don't really use sealed bids much either. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there. And, and then the, the fourth challenge really relates to this as well, which is uh, the one really, which came up as a big topic as well at the round table, which is about using sole source. Right. So people's concerns about when to use it, how they could use it. And, and I think the important thing is how to really be able to document that and affirm that they did it for the right reasons. So there was a lot of, seemed to be a lot of questions about that. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think so many nonprofit organizations have been become so accustomed to just going out and going to a single vendor that they know and trust and they yep. work with um, and not necessarily have to justify why. Well, now under the uniform guidance, you can't do that anymore. Uh, there's actually four, there's one of four criteria that you have to meet for something to be sole sourced. Um, and what our clients are finding is that they're now having to step back and think about, all right, there still are gonna be cases when it makes sense for us to sole source stuff out. Um, but when we do that, we've gotta be really sure we document the rationale why, and that, that uh, they have to either be the only ones that can do what we want them to do, um, or in some cases they've gotten pre-approval from the federal awarding agency that they're allowed to sole source something 
Um, and, and those are the thing, types of things that are required under the uniform guidance. And in other cases, things that our clients have sole sourced in the past, you know, the, the CFO or the chief procurement person is saying, hey, in some cases, you're going to have to start going out to bid for these things. You can't sole source them anymore. So it's, it's setting up those criteria and parameters within the organization, and then it's kind of rolling that out to folks so that um, they start to look at the types of things that they're buying and figure out what may or may not be okay to be sole sourced. And then those that aren't, they now have to start going through a competitive bidding process that they, they just haven't had to do before. Yeah, and uh, definitely that seemed to be giving a bunch of angina to those uh, folks to really worry about. Because in a lot of cases, those could be larger purchases as well. And uh, there's, I guess, the risk of of getting the question cost if you're not sure. doing it correctly, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And I think the agita comes from the program managers that are going to push back that don't want to have to deal with this. So... So that was a big topic area. Uh, one of the things that did come up that was interesting around sole source was someone asked the question at the round table was if the contractor that we're sole sourcing to was identified in the proposal that we sent to the federal mm-hmm. awarding agency, right. is that good enough evidence um, to justify the fact that the awarding agency kind of approved that you could sole source that? And Elisa from RSM, um, her position on that was, that's okay, but what you want to make sure you do is that when the actual federal award is made, that federal award references back to the proposal where the nonprofit said they were going to sole source, so there's a connecting of the dots there. Mm-hmm. So the auditor could come in, look at the award. In the award, they say, hey, here's a million dollars to do whatever you're going to do, yep. uh, and we're giving you this million dollars based on the proposal you gave us back three months ago. And that, and that proposal is where you would have referenced that you're sole sourcing. So if there's that connecting of the dots, that's good. If there's not that connecting of the dots, if the grant, if the award agreement doesn't reference the proposal, what she's recommending, what we recommended, is that you go back to the awarding agency and you 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 proactively ask them, hey, we'd like to sole source this. Is that okay? And get it in writing that that they approve you to do it. And that should that should be okay. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the next one, which was, a, I think, one of the other top items discussed at the roundtable as well that we've seen with many of our clients uh, is that dealing with managing of the, the system forward management checks. Yep. You know, and how to, you know, how to do that, how to ensure you're doing it, how to document it. Uh, and that seemed to, to be a pretty big topic of discussion well, and, as well. Yeah. And when to do that. Right. So I think where everybody came down on that at the end of the day was um, uh, you you clearly have to do SAM checks uh, before in awards, before you're awarding a contract, right? And it's pretty specific within the uniform guidance that it's only required for contracts over $25,000. However, in in most cases, a lot of the folks at the round table and a lot of our clients think that's too high. And so they're actually going over and above and doing SAM checks for any contract over any dollar amount, right? So that's taking a more conservative approach, but that's what they feel comfortable with. But definitely doing a SAM check pre-award. And then uh, and then typically folks are then doing ongoing SAM checks of those vendors that they're using on some type of periodic basis. It seemed like people were kind of settling on either every six months or once a year. And either one of those seemed to uh, be okay with the auditors. 
Um, you just have to document that you're doing it and you have to prove that you did it. So they want to see some type of screenshot from SAM.gov or if you're using an automated system like Vendor Risk to go in and do all those SAM checks automatically for you, you're good to go on that. So um, that was definitely a big topic. So a couple other things that came up, um, I think that we're seeing, number six is, is just around performing cost and price analysis. When is, uh, when is it required? Um, how much is too much? I think the, the lesson learned there is that in most cases, folks can perform price analysis simply by doing uh, comparisons of competitive bids when you're getting competition, or you can do it uh, mainly through um, price checks online. So if you're able to, for example, uh, travel came up several times. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you get bids for airfare or something that might be really expensive. Well, you're, you're really not going to get bids from that, but what you would do is you would, you would basically go to you know, whatever your online booking system is, do your price checks, find something that's reasonable, and then show prove that you did that price check online and that you did do some, some competitive analysis to make sure that the price you're paying is reasonable at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think the bottom line there is is that just the government just wants to ensure that you're not just spending money to spend money and that exactly. you're just not doing whatever's the, the easiest or the quickest to get it done. Exactly. You're actually making sure you're getting a competitive, you know, price that you're investing their money on. Exactly. No, nope, you're exactly right. So um, so that's that's six. I think the seventh challenge we're seeing is around small minority women owned businesses. How do you the big thing there is how do you ensure you include them in solicitations? Right, because folks are like, where do we find them? How do we include them in there? And I think what folks are starting to realize now is that they've really got to start maintaining databases of pre-qualified lists of vendors, hmm, so that they can, yeah, so that they can have them already qualified in advance, know which ones are small minority women-owned businesses, and include them in solicitations when they're going out for bid for certain types of things. I think right now there's no organization to that. So our clients are really looking at having a central view of all their vendors that lives outside the accounting system so that they can see who they are and make it easier for them to go out to bid. So that's a big one. I think that ties in with, with number eight on our list, which is managing pre-qualified lists uh, and how to coordinate with different departments who might be maintaining a variety of different types of lists. Sometimes you might have multiple departments even maintaining similar lists. So maybe lists of printers or um, suppliers or something that are, that are doing something where each department is using the, the same type of thing. So I think, again, like the SMWBEs, the pre-qualified lists, organizations are looking to centralize those more so they have visibility and everybody can kind of pull from that same that same data set. Yeah, and then Tom, uh, I'd be curious your comments on the the other one, the number nine one, which is another hot topic, which is about contractual standards. Mm -hmm. uh, there seem to, you know, you think with all the lawyers in the world, this would be something that would be pretty uh, easy and and uh, consistent by organizations. But we we found in our discussions and again at the roundtable, seems like this really is an issue for organizations to to be able to you know have confidence that, that they're executing consistently across the organization. Sure, and I think that's, um, and specific to the uniform guidance, there, there are some contractual requirements that, that have to be included in the contracts with vendors. So as folks have been trying to understand what those are, uh, really from a practical standpoint, they're trying to figure out how do we weave those in and make sure that they're included 
in all the contracts that we have. Um, and that becomes more of a challenge, for example, if you've got a vendor that you're using the vendor's contract. So the vendor's contract may not have something in there about termination, which is one of the requirements under the uniform guidance. So uh, or our clients are really thinking about contracting. They're stepping back, trying to figure out their own standards and process for contracting and how they're going to ensure the requirements are in there when they're using a vendor's contract. And in most cases, they're looking at putting together kind of a standard addendum that would have those contractual clauses that could be attached to a vendor's contract. Or in other cases, they're creating their own master services agreement that's going to have all of the standard language and contractual requirements in there. And then they might t attach the scope of work from the vendor behind that. So I don't think there's where they're kind of what we're finding is that there's no one way to do it. But no matter what, if you're signing a contract, you have to make sure it includes the right contractual clauses. So they're going through that process. Uh, so that's on contracting. And then I think the, the last one, number 10, and the one that's kind of weaves throughout all of this, and maybe the, the biggest issue with compliance is maintaining a history of procurement activities, which is one of the requirements under the uniform guidance. And, and so that means you got to document everything, right? And um, from the time you're going out and you're creating your requirements for a new procurement to the time you solicit it to show that you included small minority women-owned businesses to the time you get the proposals back and you're evaluating them, that you document that you did the proper evaluation all the way through contracting. There's just a lot of stuff that needs mm -hmm. to be documented. And most folks are on paper-based systems now. Mm -hmm. uh, all that paper lives in drawers and on hard drives and things like that. Mm -hmm. so, so this is a big, big area for them in figuring out how to manage all of this. And that's where we're starting to see some of the conversations around workflow and uh, process improvement and workflow automation as well to help streamline and manage all this documentation so that it's not living in everybody's drawer somewhere. It's actually in one place that you can find it. But the documentation is critical because that's what the auditors are going to be looking for at the end of the day. When they come out and they're testing stuff and they want to see that you complied with the standards, they're going to ask you for the documentation to support that you actually did it, and that's where you need to pull it out. Yeah, and, and in our case, I know with all the research our, our firm has done over the last couple of years preparing for implementing the Uniform Guidance, uh, helping clients do this, that's really why you know Tom led the initiative to, to find vendor risk as a partner and for us to, to really do a lot of due diligence and look at a lot of systems. But in the end, we recognize through the research that documentation and, and, and being able to demonstrate to your auditors that you've done these things is going to be a critical activity, as Tom said. So um, we're pretty, you know, we, we feel pretty confident that we can help organizations. If that is an issue they have to address. We can help them at least consider vendor risk as well as, you know, looking at their internal systems today. And maybe it's just optimizing some of the workflows and some of the ways they're, they're using systems today. But definitely the, the filing cabinet days, I think those days are a little bit numbered because that's just a challenging way to, to go about uh, living under uniform guidance. Sure, sure. So I think the, the bottom line with all of this is that organizations, a lot of them are still kind of on the front end of this. And they're trying to figure out what changes they need to make. Um, they're trying to think about how they're going to roll them out. They're trying to think about how they're going to manage all this documentation. 
and some folks are a little bit on the front end, but uh, most have not gone through any type of audit yet. So this is going to be a two or three or four year thing here where I really think is as folks start getting into this, and especially when the auditors start coming in and finding that things are not done like they need it to be, they're gonna to need to really address some of these things. So so we'll see. We'll, I'm sure we'll have some future podcasts on this to update folks. I know we're doing another round table later on this fall where we're gonna check in with a lot of the folks that came to this round table to see how they're doing. Um, and I think it, it'll be an evolving process as we go. Absolutely. Yep. So thanks, guys. Great podcast. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks. All right.